listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to the CEO of BioViva, Liz Parrish. Your right to try a drug and have agency and autonomy over your own body, especially if you're dying, 100% you should have the right to do that. We've made decisions to value human life. Now we need to put the most value into human life, and, and that literally is genetic modification for the best outcome. Liz shared her insights into developing gene therapies to end aging, the ethics of taking a proactionary approach to experimental treatments, and the growing importance of preventative healthcare. So Liz, I first became aware of your work in September 2015 when you went to Bogota, Colombia to inject yourself with experimental gene therapies. So can you tell me exactly what therapies you took? Yeah, absolutely. So I took two gene therapies. One was to lengthen my telomeres. It's a gene called HTERT. And the second one was a gene called folostatin that increases muscle mass. It's a myostatin inhibitor. It's associated with better health outcomes as far as metabolic conditions and sarcopenia, which is muscle mass loss over time. So I remember when you first appeared on the transhumanist scene with headlines stating that you had self-experimented on yourself using highly risky gene therapies. I mean, it was claimed that you had become the first human being to be successfully rejuvenated by gene therapy, with your experimental therapies having reversed 20 years of normal telomere shortening. So almost five years on, how true is that statement? Well, I think that there were the statements that we made and then there was the press and there were people who were buzzing around us trying to get interest in the area. Did I lengthen the telomeres in my T lymphocytes by 20 years? Yeah, absolutely we did. Actually more than that at this point. But, you know, I, I have an inherent problem with the media. It's always up or it's down. You're you're the devil or you're a saint. And it's always a bit fantastical, right? And I think the shark attack cells. But yeah, we we definitely lengthened the telomeres and the T lymphocytes of my body uh, significantly. So when I went in, my T lymphocyte average age was about 65. I had premature telomere shortening, and that's not uncommon. Uh, My family doesn't live long. It kind of makes sense to the lifespan of the people I'm directly related to. And after the gene therapy, I think within like three months, they were lengthened to about the average age of a 45-year-old. And then they went even longer than that. And then they ended up peaking out at around the the age of like 33 or something like that. But you have to realize that that's the mean length. So the problem with the situation, and even though, you know, we're very open about that and we describe that, people don't like to write about that. With gene therapy, we can't target every cell in the body. So my mean length of my telomeres went up, but because we can't target every cell right now, I will still have some critically short telomeres and then I have some exceptionally long telomeres. On my last test, some of my telomeres came in at 12 KB, which is exceptionally long, and then, you know, others 
days are short, but my average length has still improved. Well, you keep using this word telomeres, but for anyone who doesn't know what telomeres are and why they're so important to the sorts of gene therapies that you're advocating for, why do they function so importantly in, in this idea of longevity? Yeah, so telomeres are the caps at the ends of your chromosomes, and they keep your chromosomes safe. They protect you from things like genomic instability, which is the number one reason that people get cancer. They help the epigenetic uh, expression, meaning the gene expression of your cells stay in a more youthful state. The number of cell divisions that your cells can have are essentially tied to your telomere length. So my critically short telomeres, uh, those cells cannot divide as long. And so a, a myriad of studies from the immune system, now that we're taking a closer look at that because of COVID, older people's immune systems, you know, when you're bombarded with a virus, your immune system has to jump into action. Your, your uh, cells need to divide and conquer. And that division is limited by your telomere length. So when your telomeres get short, cells can no longer divide. They become senescent and we hit the roadblocks and generally are diagnosed with the diseases of aging at that point, terminal diseases. So in order for your body to regenerate, the most simple way to think of it is you need cells to be able to divide and regenerate. So let's say you got cut, you need cells to be able to divide and go in there and heal that wound. As you are older and you're at the limit of your cellular division, that's why it's harder to heal. Telomere shortening is one of the hallmarks of aging. But lengthening telomeres targets multitude of the hallmarks of aging. So now our company looks at five different genes, and, and that's expanding all the time, five different genes associated with treating aging. But telomere lengthening is something that you're going to need to do if you want to extend lifespan and health span. So there's the idea of just making really healthy bodies, but if you want them to live well longer, the telomere problem has to be solved. So, so lengthening the telomeres, that's just the, the first step in your opinion. There's, there's so many steps after that, but that's the most integral one for us to begin with when it comes to longevity treatments. It's the most basic step that if we had a regulated drug for humans now, that one therapy would do more for you than all of the drugs drugs on the, the market today. Your statins, your blood pressure drugs, your type 2 diabetic protection like metformin and things like that. We just did a, a research uh, study at Rutgers University, and that will be out in journal as soon as it's it goes through referee. And it will show you that once again, we have been stalled on the potentially best medicine choices uh, for a very long time because of companies' inabilities to raise money to get these into humans. Well, it seems like that solution is very much focused on the repair of cells, but there are other ways to extend healthy human lifespan, and these focus on either the removal or replacement of cells. So what have you found as some of the other forms of successful longevity treatment? 
Well, yeah, I mean, we're looking at several genes. There, there are gene therapies based around clearing senescent cells, for instance, but if you clear those cells, you need to replace those cells. And there are other genes like clotho that are associated with extending lifespan and not only that, but protecting against cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disorders. There is metabolic and uh, mitochondrial-based uh, gene therapies like PGC1-alpha, another one that we're looking at that basically make your batteries of your cells, your mitochondria, higher functioning. And therefore, when your cells have more energy, they can clear more damage. And then there's, of course, uh, things like folistatin that seem like a downstream effect of aging, the loss of muscle mass. But that was another arm of the study that we did at Rutgers. They, it, it significantly increased lifespan and health span. The genes that we're looking at today are low-hanging fruits to what people should be using, especially people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. We should be mandating these drugs as much as we mandated the vaccine for COVID and as much as we mandated uh, drugs for AIDS when the AIDS epidemic was at its height. We were able to turn around therapies within one or two years in these cases that helped significantly. So that's the the type of technology that we're working with. It's 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 not hypothetical. There is tons of scientific evidence, and and the two genes that we just used and manipulated in our study. This is reproducible data, people. This isn't like data that was you know just done by us, and we're saying, oh, these genes we just found them, they work. They actually they actually freaking work in a multitude of labs and a multitude of studies, and none of our labs have anything to do with each other, okay? So, you know, we've vastly overlooked good science, and we are ready to take it to the next level. Well, listening to you there, it sounds like the science is the easy thing, but when it comes to societal change, that seems to be the difficulty. And you mentioned there the ability for people to take these treatments when they have a life-threatening illness, what is called in the US the right to try. This basically allows those who have a high probability of dying or who have a disease that is considered terminal to engage in hyper-experimental drug trials. But you, Liz, you took that one step further and you experimented on yourself. You took a very proactionary approach and said, you know what, I'm going to put my body and my life on the line to see if these therapies will work. And there were plenty of risks involved, but you were extremely confident that these trials would be successful, weren't you? Well, I think that it's easy to say in retrospect that we were really confident. <laughs> I mean, we, we actually looked at the two gene therapies. We studied them for two years. We realized that somebody needed to take them. My son has a, a chronic disease, and I was looking for cures for kids when I ran into the aging science, and I ran into this technology that could help both aging people and adults, and we thought, let's just start a company, and let's, let's find out if this stuff works. And when it came down to who should take it, I just felt like it should be me, because if something bad happened, I didn't want to be responsible for for someone else getting sick and it was a big moment. We had the opportunity to help, you know, what is now over 7 billion people. And I couldn't have lived with myself if we didn't try it. And that's why we're still here. And that's why we're still trying to get this stuff out. 
But going back to the right to try, the right to try doesn't cover these type of drugs. The right to try will not cover experimental gene therapies. It'll only cover drugs that have been through phase one, and they could have even failed in phase one. And so I'm going to push for what's called best choice medicine. And that means that medicine that or biologics that perform better in animal models than anything available on the market. I believe that terminally ill patients should have immediate access to this. I do not believe that it should come at the high cost of phase trials. I think it should be absolutely inexpensive, and these people should be allowed to try these new technologies and be the people to bring them forward. Because otherwise, we let people die, and that's unethical. There's going to be a big ethics debate that's going to come up in this, and we will win because we're just right. I mean, sometimes I question myself this time. (laughs) I know I'm right. My fashion choices may not be good, uh, but your right to try a drug and have agency and autonomy over your own body, especially if you're dying, 100% you should have the right to do that. Well, this raises two issues. The first is that of informed consent. How informed can you actually be of the risks that you're taking? And secondly, the ability to die a valuable or good death. So, for example, I mean, if you're in a situation where you know you're going to die and you have the chance to engage in these experimental trials, even if it doesn't save your life, your participation and and what we subsequently learn from it might actually save the next person. And I mean, this would fundamentally change the way we think about death, where death is no longer in vain, but might actually help to contribute to scientific research. Well, yeah. So informed consent, there's two ways to look at that. Number one, so the people who are terminally ill are rarely informed. I mean, they're going to die. So we're not really educating the public that aging and aging diseases and chronic conditions come with a 100% chance of mortality. That's one thing. The informed consent on therapeutic basis is easy. I mean, we can educate a person about gene therapy and, and, and the potential permanent changes that they may cause. If they're terminally ill, that's probably the least of their concern. The hope that something might work is the best thing and that they can actually help to spearhead medicine. I mean, really, it should be part of like almost an organ donor program. You know, if I'm terminally ill, I should be able to try anything and help to push things forward. And what holds it up really isn't an ethical issue. It's it's a money issue. And, and that's the problem that I have with this situation is that it's, it's not based in actual bioethics. I mean, these people are dying and they should have an option. It's based in well, visibly, and what you and I hear is all these questions as whether a patient can choose for themselves when they're dying, clearly to take something else. Well, they could have a witness, they could have a a power of attorney over them to do it. And I'm sure that many, many people would, and that would change the outcome of the use of these drugs. And then at that point, we should be able to use that data to fast track uh, clinical trials. So in that case, it really comes down to money. Basically, who picks up the check? And in your opinion, Liz, is it the company who wants to test their experimental drug, the insurance companies, or is it the terminally ill patient through private means? 
Well, that would depend. If we were able to do these type of treatments right here in the U.S., it should be nonprofit organizations. It should be the government. It should be specialized funding into companies. But people should be able to also participate in flipping the bill if they can. That is completely ethical. You can actually do paid for trials in the U.S. And for the people who can participate in those, that helps companies get even farther. So I think that there needs needs to be a formed situation around who does pay. So I think that in many cases, investors and companies would be happy to pay if they could get their first human data legitimately right in the United States or in the UK. Obviously, you know, nonprofit organizations uh, would come in second and, and the government has actually, they're the biggest stakeholder in curing these diseases or staving them off and helping people live longer because for, for the US alone, it's over a trillion dollars that the the government has to spend on these conditions every year. It would be less to start solving the problem. It does feel like there are plenty of people who would volunteer to be part of longevity trials. I mean, already in the US, there are those people who sign up for drug trials and get paid a couple of thousand dollars. And for some people, that's how they make their income. Others do it to pay their way through college. And I guess, although there's a bunch of ethical issues associated with that, we could orient this so that the people who are signing up for these trials are considered heroes. And I mean, we had Professor Steve Fuller on the podcast recently, and he described how men and women would sign up for war for queen and country. Well, why can't we have it so that men and women sign up for hyper-experimental longevity drug trials for the greater good of all humanity? And sure, the thing may kill you, but if it doesn't kill you, you have the chance of living an extended life. Well, I think that you're on to a good point. Although most of the, the genetic type therapies, there are genetic therapies already used in children with diseases and, and various, but as far as the experimental anti-aging therapies, probably I know that we would look to use them outside of childbearing ages just to ensure there, there is no, there should be no effect on offspring. These are only somatic cell delivery gene therapies, but just to ensure probably we'd be looking for an older population. But there's no reason that we shouldn't have the first old man's war or old women's war. And certainly there is not much to lose and there's a lot to gain. As far as the therapies that we look at, those gene therapies have a lot of data behind them. So we don't expect, although you have to expect the unexpected, we don't expect deaths or anything associated uh, with taking these particular gene therapies. But again, anything could go wrong. When you stick a needle into a person, you know, something could go wrong, even if it had nothing in it. So, you know, there, people would have to go in with informed consent. But for, for younger people, these gene therapies, I believe, will be turned back. So people will start taking them younger and younger. So you stop accumulating damage sooner than later to get the biggest gains in lifespan. But right now, they would just be used in aged people or very sick people. I'm fascinated, Liz, to find out what was going through your head. You flew down to Bogota, Colombia, so you could do this outside of the US, and you had medical professionals around you who administered these gene therapies. But were you afraid of the unintended consequences of taking these treatments? Or because of the science that was out there, did you feel completely comfortable with the process? No, I mean, we weren't 100% comfortable. I mean, 
we were not fools. As far as fullestatin, I was not the first person that had been in. That had already been through uh, safety and efficacy for uh, muscular dystrophy. So it already had a safety profile. It already had efficacy profile. And that gene therapy, I mean, I, I believe that should be already have been used in hundreds of thousands of aging people. It, it can keep them from potentially from falling down. A, a large study needs to be done to make sure that people over the age of 65 can gain enough muscle mass, even with fullestatin. But it has the potential to keep people from falls. Frailty actually kills. It, it killed my best friend's mom just two years ago. It would actually have a multitude of metabolic benefits, which we just showed in our last study. And so it might keep people from having type to diabetes, maybe significantly long, maybe their entire lifespan. So that gene therapy, we felt I mean, that one very comfortable. The telomerase inducer, the HTERT, had not been used in a human subject in vivo. And I was the first one, and it, it was vastly unknown. So we did probably over 100 injections, and we did them to high cancer areas. I went in knowing that, you know, we wanted to have as much evidence as possible of how safe it was. So I had it injected in my breast. I had it injected into high sun areas in, in my body, into tissues that are more prone to cancers. And it felt very pioneering. But I don't think that we knew how much of history we were making. We just were trying to make a, a great change. It wasn't until the press release came out that I had taken the gene therapies that uh, my world was like, wow, <laughs> you know, now uh, I was I was not really quite prepared for that. I was going in more as a humanitarian to try to get some first data, and then everything kind of exploded. In, in a way, I think, I hope that it really helped push the technology farther forward. But unfortunately, I knew a couple of people who had companies who wanted to do telomerase induction, and they still weren't getting approval by the FDA. They were still being told to go back and do millions of dollars worth of animal uh, preclinical work. And mice are not good predictors of human outcome. And and we're having to do the same. We're, we're pouring millions of dollars into these preclinical studies in order to get these drugs to humans. And it's actually at this point ridiculous. I mean, it absolutely is hand down. You, you, look, you can look at all of the animal data and again, not good predictors. And the animal models that have to be used to prove a drug work, not good models. There's real pros and cons when it comes to that media game. I remember I remember reading in 2015 that uh, you'd been injected with 60 different treatments administered by 600 different needles. I mean, <laughs> there were some there were some really wild <laughs> stories. Yeah. And then people kept saying that I wasn't sharing data and we had all of the data on the website. We we went on several podcasts saying that any university who wanted to could look at and analyze the data. And then, you know, we had an investor come in and they said, "You know what? We're a private company. Just like, just stop. Like, you know, there's somebody's because they're going to fail to read, fail to use their ability to go look for the data in the most obvious places. Everyone's going to have a complaint. Just get the job done. And so we we said, okay. We, we will focus and get the job done. <laughs> well, well, five years on, BioViva has changed so much as a company and we're beginning to see results. So I guess the big question is, what results are you beginning to see from the procedures that you underwent in 2015? 
Well, you know, the results that I've just seen over the years, well, of course, I had increased muscle mass, but we expected that. And my telomere length is better. My triglyceride levels are down. My C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation, is always low. My HbA1c is low, better blood glucose levels. I mean, these are all things that are reproducible in the animal models, but it was good to see them in humans. And now we're interested in looking at more human data. Well, I'm interested to learn what's next for BioViva, the company that you are CEO of. What's your your ultimate aim? The ultimate aim of the company, like the ultimate, ultimate aim of the company would be to create a human body that stays in homeostasis and has, you know, advantages maybe over above and beyond of expectations. So homeostasis would mean that we regenerate faster than we degenerate, which cellular degeneration over time is what aging is, that we have the ability to have customized medicine uh, for people who are already born with a chronic condition so they can have their aging therapies and they can have the the delivery of the the genes that they need in order to overcome their, their current situation as well. So that's why we were developing this new vector delivery system, because it can deliver multiple genes predictably at one time, whereas that's a problem with the gene therapy delivery today. And then, you know, there are probably other what might be considered enhancements that are vastly based in survival that would would help our species actually overcome things like climate change, space travel, and a myriad of other things that we seem to be set on doing, so we should be doing them as safely as possible. I mean, a lot of people have, oh, you know, they're like, well, what's wrong? Well, you know, 99.9% of species have already gone extinct. And we have more people living today with chronic conditions that without medical help would not be here. So it should be a mandate to get everyone on an equal and leave a level playing field, bring ultimate health to everyone. And then, you know, go from there. And maybe you want to live on Mars. So you might need some uh, specific gene therapies for that or more of certain gene therapies in order to live there healthily and, and ensure that you have the best outcome. I mean, science has brought us to the point where I'm 50. I don't know how old you are, but we in a natural world, which is life is brutish and short. I mean, we wouldn't, I wouldn't probably be here anymore. And so we've made decisions to value human life. Now we need to put the most value into human life. and, And that literally is genetic modification for the best outcome. I certainly don't know you well, but I don't want dementia for you. I don't want cancer for you. I don't want heart disease for you. And not only do I not want you to suffer, I don't want to pay for you also to suffer. And that's what we do right now. And we can radically change that. I am sure of that. And what amount of time we can radically change that depends on the public's consensus around this technology. The public really needs to demand it. Well, this is where we have to be really careful about what we're actually talking about here, because what you and BioViva are interested in isn't living forever. It's about extending healthy human lifespans. So why is this distinction so important? Well, you want to live healthy for a long time. You don't just want to live for a long time in in any state. Now, there may be some people who think they do, but, you know, we know that when we look at terminally ill patients, you know, some of them are 
very unhappy at that point because they're in a lot of pain and in bad condition. But living healthy for a long time is really our, our striving goal. So we don't want you to live old longer. We want you to live healthy as long as you like. You know, what is life? It's experience. It's seeking. It's enjoying. It's the, the ups and the downs. It's Kurt Wagner's statement, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. I think that's that's the last sentiment in everyone's life. But if that could be our everyday sentiment, that would be beautiful. Like everything is just really adding to your life and its experience and its expression and it's spending time with the people that you love and meeting new people to love and care for. It's It's compassion and having the time and the ability to seek out who we really are and to live the life that we would like to live rather than living it under the impending doom of only so much time. We're getting things mixed up though. So immortality would be that nothing could kill you. I don't think that that's biologically possible for humans. So I don't think that that's really a goal. Like that's kind of the quantity over quality. But if we can create a body that stays in homeostasis and you're truly healthy by the definition of the World Health Organization, then what do you die of? So, you know, maybe people will have the choice to come and go as they wish. We are just a health company. We're just trying to help you live healthy longer. We don't really get on the immortality bus because it's uh, by definition, it doesn't really fit. But I hope I made that clear. Well, we recently had Andrew Steele on the podcast who highlighted that what's really important here is that successful longevity technology will combat the issue we currently face, which is as you age, your chance of dying increases almost exponentially. But I have to ask, Liz, do you have an age that you want to live till? No, I used to. Like when I first walked into, when I went to the SENS conference, I was looking for cures for kids and they were talking about genetics. So I wanted to go there and talk to people. And then I learned about aging and I was like, really, I had a big chip on my shoulder. I was like, wait a minute. Why do you people want to live longer? There are kids that like are dying, you know, and they're not even getting to have half the experience that you've had. And then when I took a closer examination and a myriad of lights went off in my head, well, when is a good time to die? You know, you'll talk to people and they'll say, oh, when I'm 85, because they're 35. So when they're 85, and am I going to go talk to them and say, okay, you're ready to die now? Because if you're ready, you can go anytime. And yet people vastly don't choose for that. So I would never put a number on it at this point. I know better. I've got so much to learn. I've learned so much since starting this company. I continue to learn something new every single day. I have to. I'm kind of forced to on one hand. But uh, on the other hand, it's necessary to live a good life to, to keep learning. And I don't see any end. If I wanted to go study ants ants, the little insect, it could be the next 150 years of my life just to fully, un well, and I probably still wouldn't fully understand that. So I'm not a person who would get bored. And if I die tomorrow, don't, don't feel bad for me. I'm, I'm okay with that. Death is not what I fear. But I don't want to be a dependent to people. I did realize that after taking the gene therapies. I, I've seen people get old and need a lot of care. I don't wish that on anyone. 
So I honestly don't have an age because I would just be putting it off. If it's today, you'll find out tomorrow because I'll be done. <laughs> oh God, let's let's hope this isn't your very last uh, last podcast, Liz. I mean, it's it's so fascinating to hear you say that death is not what you fear because when I look at the longevity community, it seems like the fear of death is what unites them. These guys want to live longer or die trying. But your motivations for this research, they're they're very different, aren't they? It's about helping your son. So, do you mind me asking why that's such a drive? force for you? Well, touching on both of those things, death is just, you know, it, it's it's just binary to me. It's it's either something or nothing. What I fear is not living a life well lived and giving back something to this beautiful place that I have been lucky enough. I mean, we're impossible. We're possible, but we're, but we're impossible. I mean, look at this planet. Look at are conscious. Look at my dog and my cat. I mean, we're what a, what an amazing thing to be part of. And I guess my biggest fear is that I would live a life where I didn't give something back that was meaningful for for all of the good that I got. So that's a big fear for me. Not getting the job done. That's a big fear. But in 2013, my son was diagnosed with type one diabetes. That's an autoimmune condition. It's not, you can't control it with diet and exercise. Uh, his body had attacked his pancreas and he was immediately insulin dependent. And without taking injections with every meal of insulin, you know, he could die. And if he takes a little bit too much insulin, not very much, just a little bit too much, he can die. And we struggle with this uh, every day. Every day, it's it, it's a problem. It's not something that goes away. Every day, we have highs and we have lows. And and even while we're talking, I'm watching his blood sugar on this device. So while I was at the hospital, I had had this education in stem cells and regenerative medicine and some things going on in genetics. And so I started really pushing hard on the doctors there what they had to help cure him. And, oh, it was just really hard because, you know, there were kids there that were dying of other diseases. And that's, um, well, that's happening right now. Which I think is what makes your work so vitally important. And for anyone in that situation, what can they do today? Are there certain things that we should be doing for our children to ensure that they have the best quality of life? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, you should be pushing for these advancements because if you're having children, even if they aren't going to die of a childhood disease, they will die of aging. We've got to set everyone up. It sounds like I'm making a big jump there, but I'm not. I'm, we need to set everybody up for ultimate success. And so this is the type of technology we need to push for ultimate success of future generations. So if you are concerned, you know, I mean, I didn't know what type 1 diabetes was. So it wasn't like I went in saying, oh, my son has a percentage chance of having this disease. I had no idea. I assumed my kids would be very healthy. The good thing about the whole situation is that, you know, he's a wonderful, healthy kid. He's played soccer all of these years. He's he's an athlete. He's amazing. He's 
so smart. He's a straight age student. He's going to college next year. So, you know, he, he obviously you can have type one, you can live a, a totally normal life. But for the kids that were there that are dying and are dying today of potentially treatable diseases, it's it's not okay. And I and of course I want to cure for my son as as soon as possible. It- feels like selling yourself as a longevity technology company is purely an excuse for doing the real work, which is helping the next generation. I mean, longevity is the buzzword. It's very sexy. You can get funding. But when it comes to children's health, there's much less interest. And it feels like your real desire is to do something that will ultimately be multi-generational. It really is. It's it's about, you know, bringing things to a multitude of generations. And as I explained, maybe not too clearly, if we're looking at treating aging in an aging population, we have an ethical mandate of people who can step forward and who can spearhead that information for those who don't have a voice. Those same treatments improve the life of their children and their grandchildren and forever to come. And not only that, these genes associated with treating aging also, in some cases, may cure childhood diseases. It really is more than longevity. And, you know, I think that, again, the media and the press are most interested in those. And we are looking at and working with directly longevity creating genes, but they just so happen to all of them have an application to a childhood disease. And that's beautiful because adults can consent to take part of these therapies, but children, it's a very touchy, touchy realm of how to get access and and help cure childhood disease. So yeah, thank you for connecting those dots. I always think that it's really clear, but sometimes it's not. Just listening to you speak makes me think that longevity doesn't have to be such an individualist endeavor. When we hear people talk about they want to extend their lifespan, it's always about that individual. They want to extend their life. But hearing you talk, it sounds like it has the potential to be a communitarian effort, one focused on the extension of all life. Yeah, that's why, you know, so we created the the BioKeeper vault on BioVivo. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that people will share their data if they're doing things to extend uh, their health span. We created Biomarker, the epigenetic test around biological aging based on good science that was already out there. We carry other kits that help people learn about their biological age for educational programs. But, you know, uh, it can be applied to a larger area of, you know, doing interventions and then uh, rechecking to make sure that your interventions are working. Are they helping or are they hurting? We want to get people really excited. Like I have so many ideas of how I would love to have an app where, you know, people can have like a little avatar and they can uh, modify their genes and, and see what sort of outcomes they can get to get people excited, getting them learning the gene names, getting them, you know, excited about their future. We try to make it about you because we know that you probably are your biggest interest. But, uh, you know, when we talk about genes, you know, it's like, well, how would you, how do you view your future? You know, what sort of things would you like to achieve? Do you want to be stronger, faster, smarter? But moving forward with these ideas and this thinking, you know, we, we really, it, it needs to be more 
than that. Because in order to have a future, we need a world of compassion. We need a world in which we care about each other. I have deep-rooted empathy for people, and it makes my life really tough, uh, you can tell. Because I can talk about adult aging, and I can talk about that quite easily, but I cannot talk about childhood disease. I have so much empathy for you know young people who don't get to see the next thing and the families around them. And then I also am now bleeding that empathy into 80-year-olds and and all of the things that they won't see if they don't go on. I mean, it really is like a book burning, right? But we need to create higher value within our communities, within each other. There's just too much business being done and not good business. There's too much money being exchanged for the wrong ideas, you know, it's okay that different things exist, and I'm happy that people are doing a, a multitude of different things, but we should have a mandate to step in and, and take care of this aging problem, and uh, we should be looking seriously at these gene therapies, and I mean, I'm just, every day I'm surprised that the, the government just doesn't step in and say, well, we'll just do it ourselves. Let's just use some of the war budget on actually helping people live longer, and we could have this done in no time at all. It's, it, we just have our priorities in the wrong space. This is technology with all the scientific evidence that you need. From a myriad of labs, it's called a meta-analysis of different people who are not working together and have no aim to try to prove anything, have shown over and over again that we could potentially, if these models are right, extremely uh, extend human health span. Well, it certainly sounds like the incentive model here is completely wrong. There's that old joke that Western societies don't really do healthcare, they do sick care, because it's all about selling as many drugs as possible to sick people with very little incentive to make them better or not have them get ill in the first place. It it feels like folk don't really understand that there is a good business in keeping healthy people healthy. Well, in this case, you could, because, you know, actually, <laughs> probably your healthy candidates are going to have the the best outcome in, in, the, in the long run, right? And we do. We have a, a precautionary reactive medicine system. So it's kind of messed on, up on both ends. So it's precautionary. It says, oh, we should do no harm. And yet in its reactionary side, it basically leads to everyone dying. So <laughs> it's not reactive enough, maybe. So, you know, that's why we need to move into proactive care, people taking uh, responsibility for their, their selves. And the ability to legally do that would be the first step. In that case, how do we change people's mindset and approach to their own health? And how do we do that without it becoming an obsession? When you look at the quantified self-movement, those guys, they track all of their health data and it feels like it gets to the point where they're spending so much time obsessing over infographics that they actually forget to live. So ultimately, how do people have a healthy approach to their own health? Yeah, well, we love people nerding out on their data. That's what I call it, nerding <laughs> out on your data. Uh, but it's true. I mean, I think that we have to live in a realistic society. I think it's, you know, aging is much like teen pregnancy. <laughs> people think that it's not going to happen to them. And it does. So I think that it, it almost needs to be, you know, part of the education system to to walk through what this really means. I mean, I was looking for cures for kids and I had to learn 
about all of this information around aging. And it, it did seem, at first, it seemed pretty grim, but I'm certainly not depressed. I'm not a depressive person and I'm going strong. It hasn't ruined me to find out how everybody dies. And, and actually it's, it's mobilized uh, my desire to do something about it. So I think that it's actually quite empowering. And, you know, I mean, people are looking now at their genomes. They're starting to look at their epigenomes. Uh, they're looking at their microbiome. Uh, like you said, this is still a small percentage of the population. But by people doing that, it gives us the ability to try to find therapeutics that that may work and uh, very likely will have a, a decent outcome. And then um, the next generation of therapeutics will come out. We're, we're going to start combining genes this year in order to uh, start to test them and prepare those for, for human use. But Again, it's it's not really just that easy because it's always a matter of funding. And before when I heard that, I was kind of like put off. I was like, oh, it's always about funding. But in order to get through the regulatory system the way it is right now, it's $2.6 billion for one drug. You know, this is another one of those instances where it's really surprising that, you know, we expect the private community to carry all of that cost. You know, we have to go and put our hands out to people who have gotten burnt the the pharmaceutical space maybe before. It's, you know, a 94% failure rate through phase three for most drugs. But I don't think these gene therapies will be like that, obviously. It's not like taking a small molecule and it damages your liver, hurts your kidneys, and maybe has a side effect of doing one beneficial thing. These are just creating the proteins that you need right at the cellular level. And they're expensive, uh, but the cost could come down significantly if we're treating the whole population. So are you an advocate for proactionary approaches like seasteading, where we can do hyper-experimental drug trials in international waters? I mean, your first treatments, they had to be done in Colombia to avoid certain US restrictions. So do you believe that we would be better off with less legislation? And ultimately, would this help biomedical innovation? I think that if we work with a new regulatory path, we might be able to do it right here in the U.S., but wherever you do it, if you waited to do it in space when you can get uh, everyone up there and all the equipment, I mean, that's fine. Wherever you do it, it's it's going to be the most innovative place in the world, and therefore it will overcome the structure on the planet. The most innovative countries are going to be the most successful countries and rich countries, regardless of how you want to think of rich. I think that we should be doing this right here in the U.S. I think that we should work with a fast track program and ensure that we're on top of innovation. Innovation no longer is just doing research. Innovation now is creating products, creating things that people can use, creating uh, the betterment of people's lives with things that they interface with. And there's no more interesting tool to interface with than your genetics. Well, because of coronavirus, the Trump administration launched something called Project Warp Speed. And regardless of whether it was effective or not, it did show that governments were able to put funding and resources into medical innovation. So what do you think needs to be done to have a Project Warp Speed for aging? Oh, I mean, it, it, it's a mandate. I think we should walk on Washington 
people need to get together. And just like with AIDS, they need to go out, they need to demand that there is access to this technology. So if these animal studies are correct, and they've been done over and over again, we could significantly extend human health span. And this year alone, 41 million people will die of aging. So if you really want to look at that as a numbers game, it's the biggest killer on the planet. You can go to the World Health Organization, you can go to the CDC, you can go to the UN. This uh, non-communicable diseases, the top four or five all being diseases of aging, kill 75% of people on the planet. And that's, that's, I mean, that we're not there is just, it's a matter of education. Look, in the 1960s, you know, people didn't take cancer too seriously. It was like, it was something that you didn't talk about. Even if you were diagnosed with cancer, you might not tell your family because you knew it was a death sentence. And in the 1960s, uh, just some advocates, people like me, five persons like me and five medical doctors got together and they said, we should mandate that the government takes cancer seriously. And even though there's not a cure for cancer, because a cure for cancer would be in treating biological aging, which we're not, as the government entities are not doing that yet, now people live decades after diagnosis. You know, and it's because some people got together and they said, I may not have a background in this, but you know what? The government should be funding they should be allowing us to do trials. They should be pushing for drug development. And, you know, most of the drug development in gene therapies now are based around cancer. They're mostly the, the CAR-T cell therapies. So it, it makes a huge difference when, when people demand. I mean, this is every year. That's a lot of people who could have been part of of, if you want to call it, the experiment uh, to cure aging, uh, because your life is an experiment and everything that you're taking is experimental. It doesn't matter if the FDA or the EU has act or the EMA has regulated it. It's still an experiment. It, it's vastly unknown. And we're dying taking all of those things and we're, we're getting sick and we're staying in chronic conditions. The CDC had the statistics. You know, I've talked about this for years. The U.S. is 5% of the world's population. We take 75% of all the prescription drugs, and we have the shortest lifespan of every industrialized country. You know, now, is that just because of those prescriptions? It's a lot of things, but but that's, but they're not helping. So, you know, <laughs> it's time to get on to better medicine. We're ready to do it, and uh, we need everyone else to get ready to do it. And, and that's why, again, why, you know, people who uh, come in with sort of charlatan ideas and they end up, you know, uh, messing everything up for everyone is really uh, disturbing because not everybody has the wherewithal to read a scientific paper. But if you do, if you're listening and you do, go read because, you know, we're there. We're there, we're at the place to take the first jump off. And then as we start soaring, we're going to have gusts of wind that lift us even higher. And again, it's about health, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, all of the other, you know, draggy questions around it. It's, it's about ultimate health. And do you think that people should live longer, healthier? I, I get Ask that all the time. Well, do you think that people should have dementia and cancer and heart disease? No, I, I, I don't. I think it's a mandate that we stop it immediately. Well, the other advantage you've got is you've got one of the oldest presidents in history. So all someone needs to do is get into his ear and go, hey, how about four more years, Joe? Uh, you fancy that? Because it might <laughs> yeah, be a I way to, 
do that. It's probably pretty hard to get to him. He's pretty busy now. Uh, he's got a, a lot of stuff going on after the, the last four years. But he did, in his State of the Union address, talk about a DARPA-type system for healthcare. And that's exactly where we should be. And and it shouldn't just be a, a government project that's happening somewhere, you know, that some researchers know about. The real stakeholders are the citizens of this country, the citizens of every country. They're the biggest stakeholders. We need to keep our workforce healthy, happy as long as possible. I, I just wish that people had the time and the the wherewithal to learn about the technology and go out and demand access to it. Well, in a funny sort of way, do you think COVID-19 has changed our overall perception of health? Do you think Biden's DARPA for healthcare could be a good thing for those advocating for longevity technologies? Well, I think it's done some really good things. Like, you know, more people know about their biology and the coronavirus, which is fine, you know, you're learning about a specialized area, then knew about biology before. They, they're learning about their immune system and, you know, maybe some things that are a little, you know, there's some bad information out there. But learning about your immune system and your thymus and the potential regeneration of it are great. I'm not sure that people are getting into that area, but they're getting into the basics, which makes it easier to have a conversation. They learned about mRNA vaccinations, a lot of viruses that we get integrate. And so people, when the immunization came out, they were like, oh my God, you're giving me a gene therapy. You're not getting a gene. So you're you're not getting a gene therapy. You're getting a, a messenger transcript of that gene and it's only going to last for a few days in your cells but that's okay we can start in one place or another but i think if they would have told the public the truth is that virus itself getting the coronavirus will integrate into your genome because very likely it did that might have gotten people more interested probably again for the wrong reasons because viruses do that all the time but it would have been a nicer education and a nicer like step into the health realm and what actually happens when you get sick with a virus. And it might have gotten a lot more people interested in the vaccine because they would be like, well, I don't want this virus to integrate. Now I want to go get it, the vaccine. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we will see. We're, we're still in the young days of all of this. But it did get people reading about biology, learning about themselves, and it did it did get people to notice their immune system and notice the impacts of aging, okay? So older people were the most prominent people in the death curve of this disease. And that definitely lends to what we're talking about. So if we had good regenerative medicine, if people were taking their gene therapies, there wouldn't have been a higher risk group. And that's a future forward statement, but you know that that's the world that we we need to be in. And I've just got to say, uh, as a person who joined a group who was going to do help with interventions of Ebola in 2014, we are lucky this wasn't Ebola because the the foolish ways that people reacted to this and the silliness that went on would have led to probably at least half of the population dying if it would have been a more serious pandemic. Well, looking towards the future, what are you most excited about, Liz? What are the developments that you see on the horizon that will have the most impact on people's health? 
Well, I think our paper coming out is going to be yeah. uh, really good for, for us and the world and the community. That's uh, one of the first steps. We also analyze data from offshore trials. Uh, we should have data out this summer from the first six uh, dementia patients that were treated with uh, dual gene therapy. And that's going to be rocketing. And of course, everyone's going to go crazy and say, oh, this wasn't done under the regular FDA. But you know what? You can do that and you can do things safely and ethically and effectively. And uh, we are being given all of the documents uh, to, to show that people can consent. Yes, yes, you, you do have a mind and you can use it for yourself. And they can uh, safely as possible participate in a therapy for a deadly disease. And so that'll be good. And then in September, September, um, if I ever have time to finish it, I'll be done with my thesis and, and hopefully uh, get it accepted. And then that will roll into some ethics papers that I'm going to develop with some bioethicists around the quicker, more advanced access to these therapies right in your homeland. Well, Liz, it's been utterly fascinating to hear how you and BioViva are transforming the way we think about health. And on that note, I just want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Liz for showing us her vision for how we can all live longer and healthier. You can find out more by visiting bioviva-science.com. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.